Welcome to the Fully Vested Podcast, brought to you by Dentons and the Chiro Society. As ever, there's a short health warning. This podcast is not designed to provide legal or other advice or give rise to a solicitor-client relationship. You should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Specialist legal advice should be taken in relation to the specific circumstances. The views and opinions expressed by those on the podcast are their own and do not represent Dentons, Kairos, or other organizations that they are from. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. Hello and welcome back, listeners, to the Fully Vested Podcast. Today, we're going to be looking into commercial contracts of various different subject matters, and I'm joined by a couple of new hosts today. We have Henrietta Baker, who has been a career-long all-star here at Denton's of 12 years, 10 of years of which have been with the technology, media, and communications team. So Henrietta, welcome. Thank you. And then Seth. Seth Allen, who has been by my side, helping to build the Kairos UK chapter since 2016, and he's the dark horse in the room. He's been legally trained, but has since seen the light and is now founder and CEO of Medeo, who are enabling truly smart supply chains by building digital infrastructure at the producer level. So Seth, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you. So today, given that the subject is commercial contracts, it's a very vast area. I'm going to look into breaking things out by um, sort of, I guess, industry within commercial law. Uh, we've got a host of questions coming in from our listener base again. And we're going to start with, I think, what will be quite poignant, which is the definition between what is SaaS software and what is enterprise software. So Henrietta, if you could kick us off. Absolutely. So. And typically, enterprise software is seen as being software that's used across an organization. So it sits uh, within the organization. It's often hosted by the organization. And the supplier of the software um, sells or licenses a copy of that. And it touches many of the uh, different functions. So enterprise resource planning or ERP software is a classic example of this. Um, and it will touch uh, human resources, the finance function, customer billing, um, sales, and it draws all that together, um, taking all the data, uh, storing it, processing it, and um, then allowing the organization to use that data. Right. And it's quite often, uh, because it sits at that uh, larger scale, is often a customized or a bespoke solution. So there's an element of uh, bespoke software development. Mm -hmm. SaaS, um, or software as a service, on the other hand, as the name suggests, is actually the focus on the service element of the software. So very much if you're on the customer side, you're actually buying the service uh, that the software is used to deliver. And the difference there is often that that software is not uh, given as a copy to the um, customer, it's remotely hosted, and it's the output of the use of that software that's delivered uh, to the customer. Yeah, and I, I'd asked uh, offline for the listener's benefit that the sort of the example in my head was that if I'm accessing a SaaS uh, package as a as a company, that means that I'm basically paying for the right to access sort of the server time and the compute which then delivers as you said the service so for example in accounting purpose generating my monthly management accounts so that i can view them as and when i want to absolutely it's often linked with a kind of monthly service charge for a defined scope of output yep. okay well I, th I thought i'd 
start there just because we we have a broad <laughs> list of questions today many of whom are coming into either the SaaS or the enterprise side uh, and then we'll round off towards the end of the episode with some more general questions um, but if we can start off with the SaaS products and an overview of commercial contracts and sort of trading as a SaaS business what is the ideal suite of contracts that a company might look to have, not necessarily that they need them all from day one, but if they're looking to slowly build up a repository of contracts, where should they be starting? So I think it's useful to kind of look at this in terms of whether or not you're talking about the kind of sale side, the customer-facing mm -hmm. uh, side of things, or the kind of input into the business. Yeah. Because I think if you're kind of going through that uh, growth uh, uh, stage, and you're taking the business from the start through to actually where you're at the point of selling uh, or licensing the software or the, the service, um, you need to look at, one, how you're getting the software in, that you're going to be uh, using to deliver the service. Um, are you developing that yourself or are you going to be engaging third parties to do that? If you're going to be engaging any third party to do that, you're going to want to contract around that uh, to make sure that you're getting what you need from them. And yep. the, the relevant rights, uh, you know, intellectual property um, uh, sits with you so that then you know you're going to be able to um, commercialize that in mm -hmm. the future. Um, so that might be uh, at a company level, you know, a, a, a third party company that's doing the software development, or it might be contractors. Yeah. Um, you need to have in place some contractor agreements, if that's the case, mm -hmm. that make sure that anything that's developed goes back to yes. you. And that they're developing what you want them to develop and that you're putting some boundaries around what it is that they're using to develop. Mm -hmm. So if you are creating this software, you, uh, open source software, as an example, yep. is uh, super helpful, um, is absolutely great. But you do need to check which um, open source uh, software license is being used. Um, because what you don't want, if you are actually creating some value in this proprietary software, is for that to be um, contaminated in any way by what's known as copyleft uh, licensing requirements, okay. which require you to put back into the open source community anything that you've developed off the back of that. You know, obviously, if you don't see any proprietary value in that and you want to help the community, it's a, a different thing. But if this is where you want to create uh, your value and actually where you see the value in the company being, that's um, a key uh, term that you will need to cover off in those contracts. Of course, and that's a really great point. We, we often refer to sort of the proverbial three people in the garage setting up their business. And of course, many businesses when they start, they have the idea, but they don't have the technical expertise. Mm -hmm. Now, when um, looking into those, I, I guess, supply service agreements with a freelance developer or development house, mm -hmm. Is it common that there might be a ongoing service contract thereafter for sort of bug fixes maintenance, or is it typically that in the first instance it's this is what I want you to build, and the contract is to build just that? If you can, so the advice I would always give is if you can build in the support and maintenance services into that contract, mm -hmm. um, it will be more beneficial for you if you're the person uh, buying that. The developer, uh, whether it's a software house or an individual, mm -hmm. will have knowledge um, once they've actually started developing that software that will be essential yeah. um, to uh, keep on maintaining it. Not so you can't move it to someone else to do, but it yeah. becomes a, a trickier 
uh, a trickier thing to do if you get to the point at which they've actually delivered what they've been um, asked to develop for you. Mm -hmm. And then you need to sit down with them and negotiate the terms and conditions for the support and maintenance, bug fixes. Your negotiating position at that point is significantly weaker because they know that they've got knowledge that you need. So unless, and, and particularly if you haven't negotiated into the development agreement, some assistance with the transfer of knowledge around what they have done to that point, you can find it very difficult actually to get uh, good commercial terms going forward. So actually making sure that your contract does include that is um, absolutely preferable. And then as well at the end, some provisions and some assistance with moving to someone else if you need to. So that kind of transition or exit assistance knowledge transfer Mm -hmm. so that then you're not locked into this arrangement for forever because you commercially can't uh, <laughs> can't get to something else okay and <clears throat> it's not uncommon that uh in in this day and age that software development especially in the early stages will be offshored mm-hmm. so are there any complications that come with having a development team that's not in the country where the business is based is it typical that the contract would be governed by the law where these software developers are or the law where the company is? Um, Generally, you have a bit of freedom around that. Um, Again, well, in terms of the contract that's going to apply, a lot will depend on the negotiating power of the parties. So if you are, uh, you know, relatively early stage and actually you're dealing with someone who, you know, software house that is doing this day in, day out, they may well turn around to you and say, here's our standard terms and conditions, Mm -hmm. and that is subject to whatever laws that they choose. Um, I think as you develop and you have a stronger negotiating position, you can uh, uh, shape that a bit Mm -hmm. more clearly. Um, Choice of law, obviously, uh, has an impact in terms of things like the intellectual property, uh, data, the enforcement of the contract, liability provisions. So that will depend on the negotiating strength of each of the parties as to which party can dictate which terms and conditions apply. Um, And it may be that an established software house will say, we actually have standard terms and conditions and therefore that's governed by the law of the jurisdiction our developers are based in. Um, If you have the choice, uh, I think the uh, advantage is to go with an established uh, legal system um, for the certainty uh, around the enforcement of the, the contract. You know, there's a reason the majority of contracts do tend to be on English or uh, US uh, law because the legal system is well established and known. Okay. Well, I think uh, just a good point to mention there. Um, the, uh, from the perspective of the founder. I think it's really important for the founder to, to really understand that the, the legal element of a lot of these um, topics that we're discovering and, and discussing actually come from the commercial. So the commercial really does strongly inform the legal. So to know, as, as Henriette mentioned, about what's the leverage, what's the negotiating position, what, what cards do we have to play, the legal element of it really just enshrines what you've agreed at a, at a commercial level. So it's really important for founders to understand the, the broad landscape commercially, legally, yeah. um, and understand that you know they do have some power and knowledge in, in that particular uh, setting 
can be really quite valuable. Okay. And Seth, for your business, for those that uh, hopefully will now have go and have a look at it, it's, it's pretty complex in the sense that you're dealing with a very, very old and sort of archaic industry in terms of supply chain and specifically for yourself, food products. Uh, you're bringing modern technology in there, both a software and a hardware side. So what complexity of contracts has that led you to looking to and what have you prioritized in sort of the sort of the early days of the company's life? Well, I think the main one is, is you know, because we're focused in vanilla coming from Madagascar, we, <laughs> again, I had to, to really look at, okay, from a liability in transit, that was kind of really quite interesting for me to, to look into and okay, where's the liability? How do we protect ourselves? Um, slightly different to, to looking at SaaS, but I think the principle there is okay, looking at the commercial landscape for the business and then understanding, okay, how does that inform what we need to do legally to mitigate our risk, to um, you know, contract appropriately with the parties that we use um, and just understand, okay, commercially, here's what we want to achieve um, what's the best way of doing that legally? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a principle I can say apart from you know, specific contracts. I think the principle there is mm-hmm. really understanding how the commercial and the legal coexist. Mm-hmm. And, and that really can, can give you a, quite a significant advantage in terms of the doing of entrepreneurship and, and building a company. Yeah. And when, when we first start the company, so, you know, the three people in their garage, maybe they've just moved into their first office, they've brought an investment off the two Joe's advice in the previous episodes. How far do we commonly get with a, uh, let's say a templated contract that has an element of customization? I know certainly when we're writing contracts at Chimera, we always try and just have, you know, as little alterable text as possible. So typically it'll be in a schedule or multiple schedules at the end. But is there a sort of a generic uh, period that you can say that really once the company surpasses X, you typically then start looking into more customization on each contract, Henrietta? I think it actually goes back to the the commercial yep. uh, point and what you're what you're doing. Um, there are extremely established um, companies that will either only trade on their standard terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. And there are equal number of those, if not more, that say actually we will uh, deal with uh, the customer terms and conditions or we'll deal with the bespoke terms and conditions because actually what we're doing is um, not that standardised. I think that it's useful um, if you do have a relatively standardised product or it's, you know, what your the specific area of the business you're talking about is relatively standardised to... um, have that standard form uh, contract um, and try and uh, use that just because you don't want to waste time if you don't need to uh, negotiating provisions that are going to be the same every time Mm -hmm. and actually if you know you are defining what the services that you're providing are Mm -hmm. um, to have that documented somewhere as the baseline is very useful. You don't want to be doing that every time you come to contract with someone. Um, But at the same time, I think keep that under review. If, you know, you're finding, uh, you know, your customer is always coming, or your customers are always coming back on the same points, you might want to think about actually adapting the baseline of the contract you have um, to streamline that process. But again, it goes back to the negotiating position. What are you actually um, selling? Mm 
Um, and does it merit having something that is customized or are you selling something that is relatively standard? Yeah. And when it comes specifically to a SaaS business, is there going to be anything beyond specific wording to describe their product or their business that is distinctly unique to compared to, for example, Chimera, which is a physical product-based business? Uh, yes. So... Um, the difference uh, will be around uh, a lot to do with you know what's actually being delivered. So the uh, the SaaS will obviously be delivering the service. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll have provisions in there that will be dealing uh, with, um, for example, the use of data, which you wouldn't necessarily have in a physical goods contract because yep. you're actually delivering an, an end product mm -hmm. whereas with um SaaS offerings you're often uh hosting processing and then returning uh you know reports or information based on that data yeah um so you'll need provisions around that in terms of the the actual depending on the level of um personal data in there whether or not you're going to kind of uh whether you need some uh, GDPR compliant provisions yep. but also the security side of that, how that's going to be um, protected, and also what happens at the end of the contract. If that is your your data as the customer, how do you make sure you can get that back so you can continue running your business um, when you come out of that contractual arrangement with the um, SaaS provider? Of course. The other thing is that if it's a piece of software that's, uh, that's being used that's actually fundamental to your business or is core to your business in some way, what do you do uh, if the SaaS provider um, has financial difficulties? Um, it's often a concern, you know, if you are a customer and that bit of software is kind of pulling together all sorts of bits and pieces. So you may have some arrangements in there around escrow, for example. So okay. the source code goes into escrow and can be released. Or you may even have escrow dealing with kind of step-ins. So an alternative third-party SaaS provider could step into the provision of those services if you, as the customer, don't have the skills that you need to take that software and uh, do what you want I think that, that last point is a really interesting one and certainly one that I have never considered when going into, okay, well, this looks like, is, you know, does this solve the needs that I need? Yes, it does. Is it within price range? Yes, it is. I have to say I've never looked into that last point, which... Yeah, it's always a slightly difficult point to raise when you're going into a contract. You know, everyone is, uh, you know, very positive and, you know, this is going to be great. Um, but it is super important to think about what happens if it doesn't work out yep. um, how are you going to make sure that you're going to be able to continue running your business okay brilliant no, i think there's that's a, a really a, a golden nugget of a point you know entrepreneurs generally are, are very uh, have positive outlooks on life um but to really consider deeply what happens if this goes wrong and how do we mitigate that? Again, mm -hmm. it's, it's looking at what happens in the real world, if I can use that term, and then enshrining those possible variances and possibility and cover that in the legal part, because that really is going a long way to ensuring the long-term survival of your business Absolutely. and not being blindsided by, by things that maybe, whilst not probable, are possible, 
Um, and if they do happen, there, there's some quite serious consequences to that. So that's, I think, a really great point. Yeah. I think there's often a temptation to say, oh, we'll rely on the relationship and we'll sort it out when it happens. But I think it's important to you know, think, actually, what we're talking about is when the relationship may have uh, fallen apart and people aren't going to necessarily want to do what we need them to do. Of so course. let's yeah. put that in the contract up front and make sure we've got the commitment that we need. That comes back to the point that we've discussed multiple times, which is ultimately when forming this business relationship to be open-minded and considerate. And it's not a case of, I don't think your company is going to survive. It's a case of, I place value on the product you're providing my company and I want to make sure that because of that value that we're protected just in case. Um, I will say for listeners that are thinking, oh, I wish we had a bit more on the data privacy side. It's such a big topic. We are going to do a dedicated episode on that specifically. So with that, if we move into the sale of an enterprise piece of software, what contracts might form part of that? And then secondly, what are the key parts of those contracts that are most likely to cause issues? So we've just covered the SaaS side. I'm assuming that given the differences in the two different business models, there are likely to be some other key areas that we're going to want to differentiate. Yeah, so when you, I think when you look at the SaaS side and you look at what you're selling, it's very much actually... Uh, the sale of the service and you're committing to do that often with enterprise software you're actually um you're actually often selling or licensing a copy of the software for the enterprise to use itself to uh, extract the information it needs and to uh, kind of service itself um because enterprise uh, software often tends to be uh across the entire organization and dealing with specific issues that organization has. It has a high level of customization. Um, so within the uh, contract, you would often see, again, you could split it into uh, different uh, contracts. And if you're on the supply side, you might want to do that in terms of uh, you know the support and maintenance, as we discussed with the, the SaaS. But the... Uh, enterprise uh, software contract will often also include an element of design, build, and delivery. And they can be separated into different contracts if you're on the customer side. Again, for the reasons we discussed around SaaS in terms of making the most of your negotiating position when you have it, you'll want to get as much of that in one contract as possible. Yeah, okay. Quick question here, um, just out of personal curiosity. Um, where is the overlap between that SaaS and that enterprise because I'm just thinking a lot of the the startup you know members in the community they're going to be very uh, familiar with the kind of the SaaS and how how that's done um, where does it switch over into kind of becoming enterprise and and therefore the kind of legal uh, elements you need to consider where do they change or is it a clear binary change or is it more of a gray area so I think the real difference there comes to whether or not you're going to be um, licensing and having a copy of the software yourself or whether or not you're want, you're buying and you want to uh, buy or sell the output of what that software can do um, and whether or not you're wanting a significant level of customization around that because if you are wanting that the differences will come from the fact that you'll need to define what the 
Whereas with, you know, SaaS offering, you'll be told this is the service and then you'll be able to assess it and look and say, does this satisfy our needs and then contract on on the basis of the the contract that, that deals with that. If you are moving to something that needs to be customised and there needs to be the element of um, development, you're going to need to set what your requirements are and identify what you want that software to be able to do. So rather than looking at the output, you're looking at what the functionality of the software is that allows you to um, operate that to uh, to meet your your needs. So there's um, a bit of uh, difference in the contracting structure. Because quite often you're also you're uh, contracting for something and you don't necessarily know what it's going to look like um, in the future. You know, we know we want uh, software to do uh, you know these wonderful things, but here's the uh, with the software developer, um, the software provider. Uh, we now need to put a contract in place to make sure we get that actually delivered. Yep. Okay. And then if we start moving into sort of some of the more generic ones that I'm sure many of our listeners are going to face at some point. Um, we had a question from one listener who basically asked that if a company has missold something as part of a long-term contract, i.e. the information that was provided at the beginning uh, didn't present a key fact or something has changed along the way, what are the key questions or approaches that that company can take to try and mitigate the effect of that or possibly even cancel or renegotiate the contract? So I think what will really depend is, um, it will really depend on the circumstances surrounding this, um, whether or not what you were told was actually um, directly in contravention to the uh, information that you were given at the later stage, whether or not you included in the contract um, commitments around the earlier information, because mm-hmm. if you've got that, and actually it turns out that the uh, counterparty then can't meet those contractual uh, promises and the contractual commitments, you'll have a, a different remedy. Whereas if it was just kind of sales information um, that didn't make it into the contract, um, but was uh, you know was a misrepresentation in some way. You'll have uh, a different remedies. So it will depend uh, very much depend on the circumstances. Um, looking at what you've got in in your contract and the reasons uh, for entering into that contract. Um, in terms of the key questions and approaches. Really, it will depend on what you want to get out of this. What are you looking to achieve? So it has. do you feel that actually the contract actually has no value to you anymore um, because the difference in the information is so fundamental? Or actually, is it an acceptable position, but you feel that you're paying too much for it, so therefore you need to renegotiate the commercial terms? You know, it will be a dialogue around that, but um, depending on... Uh, yet the contractual provisions and uh, you know the, perhaps some of the remedies that apply more generally at law um, against what your commercial drivers are and really what you want to achieve with this. Yeah, and I, I think on on this note, it's so important. Again, going back to our constant point throughout all of the episodes about this relationship between different businesses, multiple businesses at times, that when going into anything where there 
could be a degree of uh, unclarity, that there is understanding specifically of what you as the customer are expecting, but on the other side, you as the supplier are understanding of what that customer expects. And I I can give an example that uh, Seth and I both uh, work with the the same web developing uh, company, and their founder and CEO is fantastic at really boiling down to what do you need? This is clearly what it is. And similarly, if I if I think something that you're asking for is not actually going to add value to you, I will tell you that. And if there's something that I think, you know, I can predict you're going to slip and say, well, actually, I'd like this too, then he'll just bring it all to the table up front so that you can agree the complete entirety of the package. And that's so important because sometimes genuinely as, as the customer, you don't know what you need until you see it. And at other times, people are deliberately trying to be more demanding than they really have a right to be. Um, but I'm assuming that just to, to wrap off this question, like hopefully it's a bit of a, a yes or no, there is a clear difference here between being missold and misunderstanding what you are being sold. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're coming to, uh, to the, the end of our period uh, for this episode. Um, but I'm just going to fit in one more uh, as a question for the product-led quiz, uh, businesses, perhaps. Um, and it's a question around minimum purchase requirements or commitments when you are a supplier and you're engaging in a multi-year or multi-period contract. How enforceable, for example, if you're front booking for four quarters worth of sales, how enforceable is that minimum commitment? Is it absolute? Or is there leeway that the uh, the customer has to sort of squirrel out of a commitment if they need to? Uh, so under English law, uh, generally, uh, what's put in the contract will be uh, enforceable. You know, the courts in the UK try to give effect to the commercial agreement reached between the parties. Okay. But that said, it will very much depend on how it's actually drafted and written into the contract. And in order for something to be enforceable, it has to have a sufficient degree of certainty. So if it's uh, drafted in a way that's very clear as to how the minimum um, requirement or the commitment is going to be calculated, Mm -hmm. then the likelihood is it will be enforceable. If there's what's often classed as an agreement to agree, Mm It's just a loose framework. The parties will sit down and have a chat and they'll work out what's what it's going to be on a quarter-by-quarter basis. There's less chance of that being enforceable. Yeah. And if you're in a situation, so for example, when uh, we're selling products at Chimera, we have a volume-based price list. And we will often agree, you know, if we're agreeing a multi-period agreement, that we will accrue the volume across the orders, you know, outlined. Um, but we might look to say, well, actually, provided that you order 80% of this, so it's not that you know we are in, enforcing that 100%, then there, there won't be any you know penalisation from our end. Um, but if you don't have that sort of term of understanding, and you you have specifically said as as the supplier, you are getting this price because you're agreeing to you know this order, and then for whatever reason the latter half, for example, of the volume never actually comes. As the supplier, are you able to go back and seek remuneration for the price difference, or is it just a case of you've agreed to that price and that initial sale and that's that? 
So I think if the customer has a commitment and it's an absolute commitment to buy a certain volume and that's how the price has been calculated, if they don't buy that volume, it's arguably going to be a breach of contract. Right. Um, the, the Your first uh, part of the example where you say there's then a predetermined consequence mm -hmm. of that is easier to then apply going forward. Otherwise, as a, a breach of contract, you're going to need to look at claiming damages and bringing a claim under the contract for that. So yeah. it would be easier to enforce if you have predetermined consequences rather than having to establish that you have incurred loss, that you've taken the steps to mitigate it and you're subject to the usual kind of constraints around bringing a claim for damages under the yeah. contract. And I think here's a, going back to the same principle that I think has kind of been weaved into the whole conversation is to really understand uh, how the commercial element uh, is affected in the wording. So yes. you have to really have a very clear understanding, okay, what's the commercial implication if that 80% isn't met? And how can that, in terms of a legal uh, wording and drafting being put into a contract, how can you reflect the implications of that uh, potential scenario and then mitigate them? You, you as a founder, giving that founder's perspective, you really have to give that, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have to kind of give that to the legal perspective. And, then, and that's a really important uh, task that, that a founder has to go through to understand the commercial implications. And that uh, really can inform the legal one and actually save you probably in, in some situations a lot of money, a lot of time uh, and a, a lot of energy. Thank you very much. So there we have it, listeners. Thank you again for joining us with the Fully Vested podcast. Uh, Seth, Henrietta, thank you so much for coming and uh, sharing your insights today. Uh, you can join us again next time where we're going to be discussing patents with guest Justin Hill. So until next time, listeners, we'll speak to you soon.